ask me anything and challenge me. Call me out. You can, there's nothing you can say that's going to offend me. I love you guys. We know that. <laughs> we, know, we appreciate that. We appreciate you doing this. All right, here we go. Going to take it. Legends in basketball analysis with over 70 years combined experience. This is the Bob Ryan and Jeff Goodman podcast. NBA, some college, a little bit of everything. You know, what can I say? But it wasn't going to happen here with him. I was okay with it because it wasn't about talent, I didn't think. All right, let's get right to it. All right, welcome in another edition of the Ryan and Goodman podcast. He's Bob Ryan. Yeah, here we go. We're not looking around, man. We've been in the locker room too long. Let's put that ball in the air and let's get going. I'm Bill. That's Bob on my right. And that is Jeff right in the middle. What a thrill, honor, privilege, and humbling experience to be in the locker room with the guys. Let's go. We got a game. Come on. Do something one time. I, wait a minute. I, I got 20-second timeout beginning here, okay? 20 seconds, please. Just 20. I, wanna, I, wanna, I know this is a – a holiday, a high holy day for you. It's the 74th birthday of Bill Kreutzmann, the, the, the Dead's drummer. Happy. I'm sure he's been a guest at your house. I'm positive about that. I know that. who Bill Kreutzmann is, okay? Happy birthday. Happy birthday. So much fun with Bill Kreutzmann. That guy has saved my life so many different times. Oh, my gosh. Just a little nudge on the inside of the elbow. Oh, my gosh. That's a story. Probably not appropriate for this air. And then all the different times we were out there just chasing the dream. Smile on cloudy days. And I remember the raft trips down the Colorado River with Bill Kreutzmann and his family. We got to the end the first time, and we looked at each other, and we said, that was so much fun, we've got to do it again. It took us two (laughs) years to put it back together, but oh my gosh, we went back the second time, did it again, and it was even better. And that is really hard to do, and that is what really delineates the Boston Celtics as the most successful franchise in the history of the NBA. And I was so lucky, so fortunate, so privileged to be a small part of it. Even though little Billy growing up here in San Diego was a Celtics fan the whole time, I was only there just for the blink of an eye. But what a blink it was for me. And I can never thank the Celtics enough because they didn't just give me my career back. They gave me my life back. And they gave me an opportunity to get to become friends with Bob Ryan. Because I had known Bob Ryan since I first joined the NBA in 1974. And what an incredible spiritual force of nature he is. And all of his writings, all of his television work, the ability to tell a story, the ability to share emotions, the ability to create dreams, to inspire, to lead, to make us better at who we are and what we do. And then he came out with Scribe. Oh, my gosh. People who don't know about the Boston Celtics, people who don't understand what Celtic pride is, what Celtic mystique is, what Celtic culture is, all you have to do is go and read Scribe. Because all the other books, everything else about Bob Ryan has been done in service to other people. This was Bob's story. This was Bob's story of him growing up in New Jersey, of him coming up to Boston, of him getting these incredible opportunities to be a part of this remarkable community that is Boston, that is the Celtics, that is the human race. And I I am thrilled to be here as his potted plant, as his foil, and as his servant as we head to a better tomorrow. Light the candle, Bob Ryan. Here we go. I remember the first talking about Bill Kreutzmann's birthday now. Yeah, the first so I do remember you did play basketball. I remember I, I've known you as a commentator, but I remember that. Damn it, he played as well. That's good to know. As a matter of fact, Jeff, I remember the first day that I ever did actually meet the great Bill Walton. He was practice. They had come to Boston to practice, and during the pra- I, w- I went to that practice because I knew Coach Lenny Wilkins, and and and, and he let me come. And I watched, every time that Bill came off the court, he took his shoes off. And I, I was confounded about that. And I went over and asked him about that. And he said, well, that's not the first, that's the second lesson you learned from John Wooden. And the first one was you learn how to put on your socks. That was my first education to. Well, Bob, I took my shoes off because Wooden. my feet were on fire, man. I was born with congenital structural defects in my feet. And I ground my feet into dust. I thought everybody's feet hurt all the time. <laughs> yeah. Ultimately, I thought that everybody's spine hurt all the time. I also thought that only the lucky people in life could talk. 
Well, I'm a lifelong stutterer. Basketball was the easiest part of my life. Academics, the second easiest. My biggest challenges have been orthopedic health, 38 orthopedic operations. But the greatest challenge of all has been my inability to communicate, to speak. I couldn't speak until I was 28 years old. And so learning how to speak is my greatest accomplishment and your worst nightmare. And so when I was taking my shoes off, I was just trying to let them cool off, man, because those things were just burning all the time. And now that they don't hurt anymore, I, I still have my feet, yes. I have not had any amputations, although that has been recommended a few times, particularly just above the shoulders. But the <laughs> opportunity to still have all my body parts, they've all been replaced or fused or surgically repaired, but I am doing great here today. And as we live through this COVID-19 crisis, pandemic, nightmare, whatever you want to call it, this has been the most serious, the most daunting, the most challenging, and the toughest opponent I have ever faced. And I am healthy as I have ever been. But now, as we go through our lives and we think back, now, Jeff, you're probably, what, in your early 30s? I don't know, but Bob and I are relatively the same age. Bill, I love when our parents, When our parents were growing up, when our parents were going up, growing up, and times were tough, the wars, our parents had to go around the world and fight and often die, die to keep everything going in the right direction. Now, these days, they're asking us to stay at home, watch television, shop online, and eat takeout food. So perspective and relativity are some of the things that we gain as we get a little bit older. And I'm a full 67 years old, and I'm just getting started out here. I was so much older than I'm younger than that now. Bob, how about those books behind you, man? Uh, that is quite the library collection. Now, can you send me the, uh, the book titles? Do you have all those uh, cataloged and organized? Uh, like, many, like many people. Damn it. Excuse me. Stop it. Like many, like many people. Uh, turn the ringer off, please. Like I know that Red Auerbach was so mad. Your column the other day in the Globe was brilliant about when Red was all over your case there. Oh. Bob, you, you were not alone. When Red went after you, and he didn't like to do it. He didn't do it for fun, but he did it when well, he I, I, I had him in a sore spot that I didn't know was a sore spot. Well, you know. so, <laughs> And I, I, I love to describe how, you, you know, you're evolving an ongoing relationship with Tommy Heinsohn. Oh, how yeah. fantastic it was. Because There's a Heinsohn painting hanging in my living room. Don't worry. It was the Celtics, the Bill Russell Celtics in the early 60s that caused me to fall in love with basketball and the NBA. And I found that through the newspaper and I found that through the radio listening to Chick Hearn. Mm -hmm. uh, because there was never a broadcast, never a Laker broadcast. <laughs> but Chick Hearn did not mention the greatness of the Celtics. And he, he was just fantastic. He ultimately made me fall in love with Bill Russell, my favorite player ever on and off the court. Chick Hearn did. And he was the Laker broadcaster. Yeah. And, but then I transitioned from that to falling in love with the UCLA Bruins. Because shortly after I found the Celtics and Bill Russell and say probably 1962 with Chick Hearn when he started there. Because my parents, the most unathletic people ever. My parents have zero interest in sports. My daddy passed, I'm going to say uh, 16 years ago now. My mom's still alive, 93 years young, wow. just getting started, still lives in the same house we all grew up in. Mm -hmm. Larry Bird's been over there and it's just been fantastic. My mom always asks, hey, how, how's that guy Larry doing? Who had that <laughs> interesting accent from I can't remember where it was I said mom that was from French Lick she said French Lick oh my that sounds quite interesting to me and so <laughs> but I've been to French Lick and what a time that was oh oh yes I can be, I can believe it well, well answer, how about your books Bob how about your, books? your question like many people I made various uh, proposals to myself when this shut in shut down started I want to I want to annotate I was going to take inventory on the books this is a three-story house. There were uh, mul multiple bookshelves and bookcases on each of the three floors, multiple. Bedroom, uh, floor to ceiling. Floor to ceiling here, as you can see. Right. Floor to ceiling. And, uh, so so it would just, I'm, I'm, I'm very curious. I'm going to guess 2,000 minimum books. And, and now that's before we get to the reference books. I'm, I'm talking about because there's plenty of NBA guides, NBA registers, baseball so, guides, baseball uh, registers, all kinds of reference books here. 
excuse me, Bob, have you heard of something called a computer and the internet and how everything is available online? And have you heard of, have you heard of re-gifting? Have you heard of moving things on after you've read them so that somebody else has the pleasure? Now, my mom, my mom, her profession, her career, both my parents worked, but my mom was the librarian. She was our town's librarian. And we just loved books. We had books everywhere. I still read on a constant basis. I am rereading uh, uh, President Kennedy's Profiles in Courage right now. Uh-huh. Uh, just uh, absolutely a spectacular read. And uh, I had forgotten all those stories. Because, you know, when you read something when you're a teenager, first of all, I'm not very smart. I have no memory. I don't think quickly on my feet. I can't talk. And there's a few other things that I have challenges here with trying to do this show. But reading this book again has maybe inspired me to, to write the antithesis of the Profiles in Courage and maybe hand it to some of the people out there today. And we'll, I think we'll title it Profiles in Cowardice, Profiles <laughs> in Denial, in Betrayal. In Bill, you, Bill, you have a great memory. The two of you have, have two. Listen, Bob, a few years ago, I was doing a, a game with Bill, and I forget who the play-by-play guy was. But <laughs> it doesn't I, matter. It doesn't matter. Who it doesn't matter. Was. Dave Pash, who cares? Who's Dave Pash? doesn't matter. What's so I'm doing the game with him, and I called Luke the night before, and I said, Luke, your dad has all these things that he says over the course of the broadcast. How many of them are BS? How many does he make up? And he said, no, no, he, he's pretty good about these. I said, all right, I'm going to see tomorrow on the telecast. I'm going to write down three or four of these things he says about how many lakes there are in Wyoming or whatever, and I'm going to fact check him during the broadcast. It was 74 lakes in the Spokane area. That's, I think that's what it was. Right. <laughs> so I, I, I'm fact checking him, and I'm saying, I am going to nail him. I'm going to expose Bill Walton here. I look at him, and he hits all of them. He's four. I think I had you with like maybe I had one thing that might have been a little bit off, but but for the most you hit all four of them. Your memory and Bob's memory, both of you, are, are yeah, seriously incredible. Yeah, when you live it, you're so young, you have no idea where your life is going to take you. I'm the same way. I mean, my life. This is the 21st time I have had to start over completely. You know, our whole world. My whole world, I can't speak for you guys, but my whole world is evaporated. You know, ESPN is not happening. Pac-12 Network's not happening. The corporate speaking circuit is not happening. All the big meetings. You know, I am the perfect candidate to have COVID-19. I am constant when my life before. You always did this, well. Bill. Bill, you, all, you, never, you didn't shake hands for the last no, I stopped years. shaking hands three or four years ago because my hands don't work anymore. But, you know, I spent my life falling down, getting fouled, and getting in fights. And now they don't work anymore, but I still have my hands. But here I am at 67 in the age group. Plus, I spend my life every day before this happened. I spend my life in airports, in huge crowds, in hotels, in elevators, in gigantic stadiums and arenas, in the audience, meeting everybody because I love the people. And that's what I miss the most of all the things that have changed. I am busier right now than I have ever been. But one of the things that I've learned from this conversation right now is that you have a memory, Jeff, and your ability to come up with that story. We used to have the same questions when we were your age, young, in the, you know, in the <laughs> late 20s, early 30s, when John Wooden, John Wooden, you've heard of him. I know Bob has. Yes, I think Bob and I went to John Wooden's house one day. But anyway... John Wooden, he would tell us these stories. I have to put this in context. We had a 43-year relationship. I can only say it was 40 years. I can't speak for his uh, thoughts on it. But for 43 years, I knew that it was with the guy. Three years as a high school recruit, 67 to 70. 70 to 74 as his player. And then the next 36 years, which were by far the most interesting and the most valuable of those years. Because when you were his recruit, it was all about you. When you were his player, it was all about you. He never talked about himself. He never talked about other people. He never talked about other issues. He talked about what he perceived his job to be, which was make you better. Make you better as a player, what you do. Make you better as a person. Make you better in life. But then, 
after I graduated and our relationship changed and he, I became his friend, I, I can't speak for him, but he would start then telling us stories about himself and his own life. And this went on for 36 years. And as the 36 years went on, the stories just kept getting more grandiose, more incredible, more intricate, more universally intertwined with everything that ever went on in the history of the world, including his, his turning down the Lewis and Clark expedition, his turning down opportunities as a young boy to go and hang out with Abe Lincoln and maybe go to Washington, D.C. and save the country. But <laughs> we never believed any of it. And then the internet came. Bob, you're familiar with the internet, right? So here it was, John Wooden, he he kept telling these stories, and there'd be a group of us around. It'd be, you know, Andy Hill, Kenny Washington, uh, Marcus Johnson, Bob Webb, Mike Warren, Lucius Allen, Keith Erickson, Lynn Shackelford, the the core, core guys who were there a lot. And so while somebody, while Coach was telling the stories, once the internet came out, there'd be somebody like Bob Ryan over in the corner fact-checking him, like <laughs> Jeff Goodman was doing to me that night. And every one of the stories that he told us, these remarkable trivia facts that he had lived, witnessed, and experienced, and every one of them were true to the word. And this was spoken by a guy who was in his late 90s at the time and still to the very, very end just remained sharpest. Could be. I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I'm one of two guys who played for both – well. I'm going to say three guys, three guys who played for both John Wooden and Red Auerbeck. And that would be uh, Willie Knowles, Sidney Wicks, and me. Oh, uh, Curtis Rowe, too. I, I, yeah, I, I forget that Curtis Rowe was there. Any I, other guys, Bob, that can, you, you can remember besides Willie and Sidney and Curtis? No, and me? no, no you, other UCLA guys jump out at me, no. Yeah, you know, there was a Todd Day, I think. What's, no, Todd I, Day, he didn't go to UCLA. Arkansas. Oh, Arkansas. Those are two different places, UCLA and Arkansas. With currently no NBA, NHL, or Major League Baseball, you might think there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. BetOnline still has hundreds of places to wager, from their online casino to poker and blackjack, all open 24 hours a day and all online. Sports aren't totally done. There's still mixed martial arts, golf, eSports, XFL, and many more. So if you're into entertainment, you can still bet an American Idol, the elections, the spelling bee, and even the Nathan's hot dog eating contest. Be sure to use the promo code CLNS50 to receive your 50% welcome bonus in your first deposit. Bet online, your full access wagering solution. You know, that day that you, uh, you referenced uh, was in 1989, and you took me to his apartment in Encino. Right. We spent about two hours, and here's my big takeaway that I tell people the story when the subject of John Wooden comes up. My one, I had one other encounter. I interviewed him, and in I talked to him casually at a hotel once. But anyway, he recited the entire batting order of the high school baseball team that he coached in Indiana in his first year after graduating from Purdue in 1932. And it consisted of all tongue-twisting Polish names. <laughs> and, and somewhere in this house, I've got a little cassette, the old little cassette, I, of that that in that day, I mean, don't throw that away. Bob. Don't throw that set away. He was eighty nine years old at the time. Right. So, Coach Wooden, he he was a stickler for organization and discipline, sacrifice, and all the things that go into making greatness. And so he would he he lived by the mantra: failing to prepare is preparing to fail. And so he would work so hard on getting ready organizing practice and he would write down the practice schedule what was going to happen that day put a date on it and he would have on it you know 330 to 335 you know warm up three line drills and then into the uh, baseline pivot pass and dribble and uh, stop and all that and on and on throughout the whole two-hour practice and he kept every one of those cards for the 27 years that he coached at UCLA a few years before he died, he was just kind of going through some stuff, and he came across this huge collection, and he said, ah, oh, what's this? This is just nothing, and he threw them all away. I just cannot believe it. It, it oh, wow. was just ridiculous. But the, one of the things about John Wood, and it, it, I want to caution you, Bob, is because in our world today, which is generated by all the media forces that hit us every single day, that they want us to live in a qualitative binary decision-making world where there's always something has to be the best. And that means that something else then has to be the worst. 
And that's not the world that I live in, and that's not the world that John Wooden lived in. He liked a lot of things. And his ability to change. Now, I couldn't change his mind on very many things, but he changed his own mind on a lot of things. And I don't know if you, Bob, have read Coach Wooden's book, My Personal Best, which is a compilation of a lot of stories in his life as to when he was standing in the fork of the road and he had to make a choice and a decision as to what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And the way he tells those, he was a brilliant storyteller, much like Bob Ryan, that ability to set it up, develop the facts, and then, man, a just a just dynamite, explosive punchline at the end, just fantastic. <laughs> that was John Wooden. That's Bob Ryan. That's the, that's the goal and dream of all of us who were trying to make it out there. But Coach Wooden, he ultimately confessed as to how much he changed because we got, to, we got there when he was in his mid-60s, and he was you know, a very calm, very observant, you know, very uh, tightened down and buttoned up guy. But then uh, over the course of those last 36 years, he, he broke down and he was telling us the stories about when he was just getting started in coaching and how he used to get in fights with the parents of the players, the parents who thought their son, their little Charlie or Billy or Johnny, whoever it was, that their, their son was the best player on the team and and John Wooden was derailing that person's career. And so I got the parents would come in and threaten John Wooden with his job. And John Wooden would say, well, why don't you and I go outside and just settle this between the two of us right now? And his ability to change. But I could never change his mind enough to come to a Grateful Dead concert. I could never change his mind enough to sign the letter to Richard Nixon that I wrote. And I could never... <laughs> I could never get him to change his mind uh, on too many things. He was a, a very thoughtful, a very determined, a very conscientious, very kind, generous, warm, loving, happy man whose happiness ultimately came because, Bob, you've witnessed people change over the course now of your years and, and, and your description of John Havlicek inscribed, uh, you know, as, as your favorite player. I, I believe I'm, I'm categorizing that correctly. And, you know, John was just so perfect. And then John was fiery as can be and how he changed. And so, but John Wooden, one of the ways he changed was that his happiness, when you're the great player, when you're Havlicek and when you're Larry Bird and you're Bill Russell, you know, that is one position in life. But when you get further and further removed from that position and you are no longer the guy who is responsible for the result, John Wooden's happiness shifted. His happiness shifted to seeing other people succeed. And, when, and that's what coaching, teaching, parenting, leadership, corporate executive, community activist, that's what the real joy in life becomes for all of us. Because our bodies, our bodies fail us at some point. And, but he just kept going. And I was so mad at him when he retired at 65 because I thought he had so much more to give. I, I was unaware. I was unaware of what the future held for him because he went from coaching 12 people every year. He went to coaching the world and what a magnificent job he did. And his biggest joy, his biggest sense of pride and happiness in those later years were to see other people do well in a team concept when there was acknowledgement to the help that was provided along the way. Coach Wooden, he loved the team game, as did Red Auerbach, as did I, as did every Celtic that I've ever come in contact with. Bill, Bill, you asked us to challenge you before this. Right. I'm going to challenge you with something that I don't know enough about, but the you obviously talk about Wooden, and, and he's probably the greatest coach, certainly the greatest college coach that ever. He's played. one of them. He's one of them. Know that, right. He's he was the first guy to say that. He was the because every time anybody tried to build him up, he just said, I'm a basketball coach. I'm an English teacher and a basketball coach and a dad and a husband and a grandfather and a great grandfather and a human being. And he he was never comfortable with adulation, recognition, credit, or acknowledgement. And when they named him the greatest coach ever, Jeff, yep. not the greatest basketball coach, not, not the greatest college coach, but the greatest coach ever, when they named him that, he said, Nobody can say who that is. That's just somebody's opinion. And then he took a pause and a breath and he said, but I will, but I will acknowledge that I was among the best. 
how do you react when when people try to use the uh, he didn't do it on the up and up the Sam Gilbert stuff? Uh, how do you Nonsense. yeah? How do you react to that? Nonsense. That's people who lost and people who couldn't get it done, who people who couldn't recruit, people who couldn't develop. That is this. There will always be people who belittle success. There will always be people who will not appreciate the brilliance of Michael Jordan in the last dance. There will always be people who will say that player X was not very good, but you know, those are all personal opinions. And it was the scoreboard is the ultimate arbiter of what was going on out there. And coach Wooden was a, a very serious trash talker in his life. Uh, not, uh, not vociferous the way that uh, the players are today with just nonsensical stuff foaming at the mouth and, and, and not as uh, outspoken as Larry Bird, who was the greatest trash talker I've ever seen, but coach Wooden biting, Oh, and sarcastic and cut right to it. His ability to, you know, he was an English teacher. That's what his true love was. Second to that was, besides his family and his faith, was his, uh, his love of baseball. He, he, he preferred baseball, but he was better at basketball. And so that's where his career took him. But the scoreboard. And, you know, one of the things that he tried to get us to, to incorporate in our own lives was to live by the two sets of threes that he tried to live for, which were, which are, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't whine, don't complain, don't make excuses. So uh, I'm not here to make apologies uh, or to acknowledge the nonsensical statements. If we spent all our time uh, responding to nonsensical statements by people who have no business and no knowledge of what was going on, we had the time of our lives at UCLA. And I will admit to this, I'm guilty of two things. I'm guilty of smiling on cloudy days, and I was guilty of always being hungry. I was always, I'm still that same way. I'm always hungry. But at UCLA, I was never hungry for very long for anything. As you know by now, I'm finally doing something about my weight and my health by starting Awaken 180 Weight Loss. I've already dropped about 18 pounds, and I'm not the only one. Kendrick Perkins is down about 30 pounds, and we're just two of 11,000 who found the solution for weight loss. No gym, no medication, no tricks, or gimmicks. Awaken 180, a combination of science, nutrition, and expert one-on-one coaching. If you have weight to lose, I recommend you call Paige and her team. You'll lose weight starting the first week and each and every week until you get to your ideal weight. Awaken 180, six locations, but during this lockdown, they're starting client virtual, the same program from the comforts of your home. Simply log in to awaken180weightloss.com. Fill out the form online and start your weight loss transformation. Awaken 180 Weight Loss, the official weight loss program for the Boston Red Sox. You made an allusion to the Last Dance. I, have you been watching it? And if so, what's yes, your- I try my best. You know, I'm, I'm keeping up with it. It's uh, it comes okay. fast and furious, Bob. Bob, I I have to, I have to confess, I am busier than I've ever been. Why? Because I have a duty and a responsibility and an obligation to the people who are hurting right now. One of the lessons in life that I learned from Bill Russell was that the game of basketball provides a forum, a platform, an opportunity for each and every person, each and every player to make a positive contribution every moment of that game. Of the the 21 times that I've had to start over, this is the only time I've been healthy. And people out there right now, people are hurting. 
People are afraid, people are scared, people are sick, people are dying, people are alone, people are hungry, people don't have jobs, and it is daunting. And I, I'm doing fine. You know, I, I have my health. Lori is healthy. The children are healthy. My older brother passed away. Bruce, uh, Bob knew him. Uh, Bruce passed away last October. Uh, he had two children and, uh, and, and five grandchildren, and so we have adopted those. So now we have six children and uh, 14 grandchildren. And so we're, we're all healthy. My mom is healthy and uh, my, my siblings are healthy. And so, but that just doesn't mean we just go home and sit in our mansion on the hill. No, man, that means we got to get out and do something. You know, I, one of the things that I loved about Red Auerbeck, man, that guy was a man of action. He was not sitting around. It's like the start of this show. You know, we're not going to sit around and wait, wait for Jeff to give these introductions. I mean, we <laughs> guys who know each other, let's get going. And so I've been spending a ton of my time uh, raising awareness, consciousness, and resources for uh, the food insecure people in this country, the healthcare workers, and uh, trying to find all the medical equipment that our healthcare workers need because, you know, you talk about sacrifice. I mean, my first coach, he was the first responder. My first coach was a fireman. We didn't call him first responders. We just called him Rocky. He was my first coach. And, you know, he was just the greatest dude in the world. And, you know, I can easily make the argument that he was the best coach I ever played for because I was eight years old and I had no idea what he was doing. And he just said, let's go have fun and let's go play ball. It didn't matter what we were, you know, I started in basketball, but then he was coaching every sport all year long, every day, every student in the whole school for 59 years as a volunteer. When he died a few years ago, he's the richest guy I've ever known. Man, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. So, I, And I've been super busy because now I have learned how to use Zoom. And I have learned how to you know, use my technology. And I have, uh, so I'm doing tons of writing. And I'm doing tons of uh, research and uh, organization. I'm trying to teach myself as much as possible. And I also have to help. It's not something that I take for granted. Uh, when you're young like Jeff, you, you know, you take that help for granted. But, you know, I mean, you take a lot of things for granted when you're young. But when you've been through the travails that Bob Ryan and his wife have been through, you don't take anything for granted ever again. And I don't, and that, when I was on that ground, when my spine failed, you know, I've had a lot of very serious life altering, life changing operations. But man, when your spine fails and you're on that ground, and you'd rather be dead, that'll change your life around. That'll make you look at things a whole lot different. Is that why you're... What was it that your question was? I forget. Bill, you're, you're it was about the overview of it. I've said this. Every like time I've seen you, you are upbeat, you're happy, you're smiling. Is part of that because of what you went through 10 years ago and where you were? I'm alive. And everything is... Perspective, you know, at, at the end of the line, what you learn when you face death is you learn tolerance, patience, perspective, and relativity. And if anybody had ever associated those four words with the name of Bill Walton before, you'd have to seriously question that person's sanity. But here I am. And, you know, I, in, in a relative sense, I, I don't have any pain. I'm healthier now than I've been since I was 13 years old. And so I, I go full speed every minute of every day. Every minute of every day is allocated for some opportunity, for some project, for some purpose to try to make things better, make things better for as many people as possible. That was Bill Russell. That was Red Auerbach. That was the Celtic way. That was John Wooden. And the in all these incredible people in my life, I mean, my parents, greatest parents ever, my first coach, Chick Hearn, John Wooden. Jerry Garcia, Grateful Dead, Bob Dylan, Neil Young, John Fogarty, Jimmy Cliff. It's an endless list of guys I can put out there who just have always been searching for a way to make things better. And then every day we turn on the, we turn on the news and we find people who are trying to make things worse. And so it's like, whoa, fighting the age-old battles that we sometimes won before. Me and some of my friends. We were going to change the world. 
Mm -hmm. I want to walk like a giant on the land. I don't want to float like a leaf in the stream. Thank you, Neil Young. Yeah, stand tall, shine the light, turn the music on. And one of the greatest lessons that I learned during my down periods is that when you're down, when you're scared, when you're afraid, when you're anxious, that's what you're thinking, that's what you're feeling. You want to feel good about something? Get to work. You know, go out, go do something. Go see how you can volunteer for somebody who's in worse shape than you are. Go read Scribe, and that that'll fire you up, man. <laughs> to go where he to come from where he was in this very nice life, and all of a sudden show up in Boston, and then wow, okay, now I'm on the Boston Globe, and then and then and where it went from there. You never know how this remarkable game of life is going to play out. I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I know Bob Ryan. And I have known him for a long time. And I, I, I love the way he, he looks at you. He looks at you and he kind of just peers, peers, you know, trying to, trying to figure you out. And I got my shirt on today, Bob. I am about You talked about the, the, uh, the, the golden opportunities. And as we uh, try to uh, put things together here, Think of my very first game in the Boston Garden, and we're playing against Philadelphia in an exhibition game. And bear in mind that the only thing more meaningless than the partial score of an NBA game is the final score of an NBA exhibition game. <laughs> and so here it was. I'm playing, and I had been many times in the Boston Garden as an opponent with the Blazers and with the Clippers, but also as a deadhead. And that place rocked the Boston Garden. It always rocked. Whatever time, whatever event, it was rocking. And so this was when Larry Bird was the king of the world. And the game, it was an exhibition game, and, but it was fierce. I mean, every time Larry walked on that court, man, it was fierce as could be. And so he was rolling and rocking, and the place was just jumping and the scoreboard was bouncing and it's an exhibition game and I had just come from six years with Donald Sterling and the Clippers and I'm saying oh my gosh and I can hear the fans chanting chanting and so I go up to Larry and I say hey Larry I, I hear the fans but I can't make it out are they chanting Jerry 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 and he looked at me with this enraged look and he said no they're chanting my name and you better get used to that then he turned banked in a three I mean he was just he was incredible the single greatest player I ever played with by far the greatest I played against was Kareem by far not even close but Larry Bird and as great a player as he was he was even better human being and and, and, and to be able to to know someone, you know, as special as that. But when you're on a championship team, and I've been lucky, I was on championship teams and uh, all through elementary school, high school, college, NBA, you know, those teams you never forget. They change your lives forever and they, and they become your best friends. And then I've been on bad, I've been on some of the worst teams in history too. And even though the guys were super nice, it's just not the same. You know, that, that being, that being part of the championship team, but, but, but I, I, I've tried to make uh, as much peace as I possibly can and could with the teammates that I was not able to help them win the championship because I, I take my responsibilities as a player, as a team member, very seriously. I, I hate to have let people down. From a basket, pure basketball standpoint, what was the most fun about playing with Larry? Just as a basketball. Yeah, so this, Bob, goes to your – this goes to your one takeaway from John Wooden. There's no one thing. It's, it, it's endless. And I, but the thing that, the thing that really, uh, I think the thing that uh, tingled, tingled my brain the most, or among the things that tingled my brain, was just how darn smart that guy was and how he knew where everybody was and what they were doing at all times, on and off the court. And he, one of the things that I loved about playing basketball was being the lone defender against a fast break. And here, uh, I used to watch Bill Russell do this all the time. 
Uh, and uh, granted, you know, there was very limited television in those days, but I never missed a Celtic game because of Bill Russell and Red and, and, and Sam and KC and all the guys. And please bring me back to KC in a moment. But Larry, one time in practice at Hellenic College, I was back on defense, and, and, I, and I had it. I mean, I, I was guarding the whole stat team. We used to call the, you know, the first string was called the white team because they had the white jerseys. And the second string was called the green team because we wore the green t- jerseys. And so we used to call the green team, would call the white team the stat team because we felt that they were only interested in their own statistical accomplishments and, and, and selfishness. And so there was a lot of trash talking going on. And they were coming at me on a fast break. And it was Larry and Kevin and Danny and Chief and DJ. They're all coming at me. And my guys had them, weren't, weren't even coming back. But I had them. And I was going to stop them. And, I, and I, I had them all, every angle covered. And then the ball came to Larry. And I knew I had him. And I was going to send it back the other way. We were going to have that advantage coming back up the court. And Larry found a guy that I had lost. And man, I was just so mad because he, you know, I had him smothered. I had him covered and he somehow found a way out of it and got it to a guy who, who I had lost track of and and they were able to score and turn it. I had to take it out of bounds as opposed to send it back and start the fast break the other way. It's interesting you say that. But Larry, everything he did was at that level. You know, his, his sense of, of leadership, his sense of responsibility, his, his sense of assuming the burden that very few people want. It's easy to talk about being the best, but the pressure and, and the weight of the world, I mean, it, it breaks a lot of people, it breaks a lot of bodies. But that guy just kept coming, and he loved it. And, you know, he, he wanted that ball. He wanted the, he wanted the outcome to, to be reliant on, on, on his contribution. But, and the thing was that it, it didn't bother him if somebody else made the, made the big play. And, and that's what is really determinant about a great team, is that it wasn't like we were over there sitting, you know, and saying to ourselves or to each other, gosh, I hope Larry has a bad game today so I can get in there and do something. No, man, we, we wanted the other guys to do well. We tried to help them do all, uh, all the things. And, and, and all these things that I say about Larry, you can say about all the guys. I mean, everybody had different personalities. And, uh, you know, as great as Larry was, you know, you had Kevin who – you know, we had Larry Bird, nobody else did. We had Kevin McHale, and nobody else did. We had Red Auerbach, and nobody else did. We had Casey Jones, and nobody else did. We had Chief, Chief, who was the foundational pillar of the team. And he was just fam- fantastic. And to be his uh, caddy, to be his, his bag man, to be his valet, to be the guy who got to sit next to him in the locker room and make sure he had everything he needed, and to see DJ over in the other corner and, and DJ, who was uh, very much involved in the early parts of my career, uh, he was there on April 18th, 1978, uh, the day that my uh, the bone in my foot split in half when the Blazers and the Seattle Sonics played in a playoff game, and things were never the same. So, And Danny, who grew up in Oregon when I was uh, uh, playing for the Blazers, and he would come up. So, it, 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 And then I didn't even mention the guys on the, you know, on the green team, you know, Scotty Wedman. There were days, Bob, you were there. There were days when Scott Wedman was the second best player in the world and he couldn't get in the game because Larry, because Larry wouldn't come out of the game. In the, in the Memorial Day Massacre against the Lakers in 1985, Scotty Wedman was 11 for 11. Right. On the floor. <laughs> And, and Scotty was just like this perfect player and wonderful and, and as classic a shot as, as you've ever seen. And he would go in all the time. Every day he played against Larry. And Larry would have played, you know, 45 minutes the night before. And Scott is sitting over there all game wrestling. I'm going to get him tomorrow, you know, the next day in practice. And, and then Scotty would get going. And then that, that would just wake Larry up. And then Larry is just so super competitive. We haven't talked about Jerry Seasting. 
and Rick Carlisle and Greg Kite and David Thirdkill and Sam Vincent and all the guys, or Ray Melchiori, you know, the, the, the story of the day that Ray Melchiori, the, the, the trainer, you know, one of the things that Casey Jones was fantastic about was he knew, like any great coach, he knew the pulse of the team. And he knew that the job was to get it done in the games and that practice was about preparation. And everybody was at a different pace and schedule for preparation. And so as the season would grind on, tough game after tough game, because when you're the best, everybody wants you and they bring their best and you've got to be at your best every single game. The games we lost in the championship year of 86 were all to the worst teams in the league. We didn't lose any of the good teams. We did lose to Philly twice, but the, the, the first one was 100% on my shoulders, and the second one, Larry missed two free throws in the closing seconds of a game we had won. Anyway, not that I remember. But no. so, <laughs> uh, okay, where was I there? <laughs> All the personalities you mentioned. In, in- yeah, Ray Melchiori. Ray Melchiori. That's where I was. Sorry. So KC loved – to get everybody there to start practice and then say, okay, if anybody can make a half court shot, we're out of here with no practice. Really? And so Larry, whenever, whenever Casey said that, Larry said, okay, I got it. And he'd go to the, he'd go to the free throw, you know, the half court line, get a ball, do a couple of deep knee bends and just stand there at half court with that set shot and just swish it in every single time. Except this one time he couldn't make it. And he was mad. He kept trying in case he said, no, 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 you can't make it. So he, and then everybody else said, well, let's us try it. And so everybody else on the team tried it this one particular, and nobody could make it. And so Casey said, okay, we're going to practice. We're going to practice. And so we're down on the floor, and we're stretching and getting warmed up and getting ready to go and start running. And Ray Melchiori, our great trainer, he comes walking out from the – locker room, the training room, as it was at Hellenic College. And he's all loaded down with scissors and tape and whatever he's got in his pockets, right? And so as he comes walking out on the court, somebody yells, come on, Ray, you make the shot. We'll get out of here. We'll go have, you know, we'll go have lunch. We'll go do whatever. And so Ray said, what? what? So we explained, look, Ray, all you have to do is just make a shot from half court and we're out of here today. It was a beautiful spring day. And so Ray said, well, what do, I, what do I do? Just stand here. Here's the ball. Throw it in the basket from half court. And so Ray said, okay, well, wait a minute. So he starts taking off all his gear. And he, you know, takes off his scissors, takes off his tape cutters, pulls out some rolls of tape from his band-aids from his pockets, pulls out a big wad of cash, then digs deep in one pocket, and he pulls out a gun. He pulls out a gun and puts all this stuff on the floor in Hellenic Cup. So now he's got just his empty pockets and his pants and his shirt on. And, and then they give him the ball, and Ray can't even see the basket from half court. And then Ray gets the ball, and he winds up and throws it as far and harder as he can and the ball banks in from half court and everyone's yeah yeah let's go no practice today but then we looked around and said come on let's just go ahead and practice anyway we're having too much fun because when you're on a great team that's all you want is more you just want to play more all the time and that's what my experience on the Boston Celtics was there so many, was so many highlights of that year uh, but one I remember because you are the climate you are the the punchline of the story was the 36 to 6 run against the Hawks and in, in, oh in, yeah in the second round of the playoffs third period because the 20 it ended with a 24-0 run and the last basket was you on a trailer dunk you you coming down I dunk. A, I dunk. a trailer you were a trailer on the break and 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 they gave you the ball and I just, what I remember about that run is uh I, I remember Danny Ainge <laughs> Because one time, Tree Rollins just got so frustrated that Tree, after the Celtics made yet another basket in this 36-6, to 24-0 run, Tree just got the ball and in exasperation, because Tree hated Danny Ainge. And, oh, yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and so Tree just takes the ball out of bounds, and instead of tossing it to Dominique or Doc Rivers or Reggie Theus or whoever it was on the team, Kevin Willis, 
Dre takes the ball out of bounds and winds up and throws it as hard as he can right at Danny H, right at his head. <laughs> and, and, and so everybody thought, okay, well, they, they got to call something. You can't just allow that to happen, right? But the referees didn't call anything. So everybody else was just stopped standing there. And the crowd is just so over-the-top happy and ecstatic and exuberant, exhilarated, empty the thesaurus. And the ball goes rolling down to the other end of the court. And Danny. Danny immediately realizes that the refs aren't going to call anything. So Danny, before anybody else realized this, he sprints down the far end of the court, picks up the ball, dribbles up the court again while everybody still is standing there waiting for the refs to break up this anticipated fight. And Danny pulls up and hits another three-pointer right in the hog's face. As Mike Fratello said, uh, just threw up his hands. And his post-game comments were Mike Fratello, who was voted coach of the year that year in the NBA. Yeah. Mike Fratello, his comment was, well, we ran out of timeouts and the trade deadline had already passed and I couldn't make any more trades during the course of the game. So that was when you, yeah. as a writer, when you get a line like that, you run with it. You're a hundred percent correct. I, that was, that was hilarious. I just right. want to back up one thing about Larry before we actually talk about Larry with distinguished Larry to me, among all the great candidates for GOAT, whether you're talking about Oscar, what are you talking about? Have a check. What are you talking about? Michael LeBron, Larry Bird got more done with fewer touches than anybody. I think that's what distinguishes Larry. He got more what? More done with fewer touches oh, than yeah. anyone ever. He didn't well, have to have the ball in his hands all the time to call it to wreak havoc on a team because he could anticipate two steps before he got it, what he was going to do with it, and a gift that I don't think I ever saw anybody else have. Larry, he could beat you in any number of ways. And he was really representative of the entire team because that Celtic team could win any type of game. It could be, it could win a slowdown game. It could win a race horse up and down game. It could win a power game. It could win a skill and permit game. It could win a shooting game. It could win a passing game. It could win a defensive game. It could win a strategic game. And while we're on that front, let's shift to the strategies of Casey Jones. And I miss Casey, and we love that guy dearly. He was the most like John Wooden of any coach I ever played for on and off the court. Lenny Wilkins was close, but Casey, Casey was older when I played for him. Lenny was just getting started in his coaching career when I played for him. And I, didn't, uh, uh, I couldn't deliver for Lenny. I tried, I tried every, with everything I had, but uh, uh, the Blazers and Oregon and me, we, we owed – Lenny Wilkins a better shake than he got but Casey Jones he was perfect for our team and we loved that guy and we would do anything for Casey Jones anything he said and he just made it fun and he was never trying to mess with you he was just just having the he was enjoying it too and you know he knew he had been on those great teams he had Casey had a tough life man he had a tough go to make it and then, but then he did make it, and he deservedly in the Hall of Fame, and deservedly number retired at the Boston Garden, and just just fantastic. And I remember there was this one time we're playing at practice, and in, in practice at the NBA level, you you know, on our Celtic team, the, the practices basically went like this: we warmed up for a couple minutes, and then and then we had shooting games. Uh, they were incredibly competitive and tons of trash talking. And then after we got going with the shooting games, then we went straight into the three on two conditioner, which is a John Wooden invented drill, which was the greatest drill ever for the sport of basketball, maybe for any sport, anywhere, whenever the three on two conditioner. And it was just so up and down and so wide open and freewheeling and everything. And then when we got done with that, then it was time to scrimmage. And Casey, he always had uh, the assistant coaches, uh, uh, Chris Rogers and Jimmy Ford. Yeah, those guys, they were the refs. And they were the worst referees ever because they would constantly cheat for Larry's team. And no, they were. It was was ridiculous. And they they would make every single call for the white team, for Larry and Kevin, Chief, Danny and DJ. And, and I would just get super upset 
at, at the way these guys were ref in the games. Because the, the green team of Scotty, Scotty, Greg Kite, Rick Carlisle, and Jerry Seasting, and me, and then backed up the deeper, Third Kill and Vincent, we never played. We sat on the bench the whole time. So the practices were our time to really shine. And so while the first string, they were just trying to survive and just trying to get through it and stretch it out a little bit and get ready for the next big game. They were going to play 45 minutes. We're out there with everything we have. And this day, one day in particular, uh, Chris Rogers and Jimmy Foreman, they are cheating us so bad. And I am on their case. Jimmy Rogers. I'm on their case about how bad they're doing. And, <laughs> And so finally the ball comes to me and instead of initiating the fast break and getting going up the court and try to get back into the game, I put the ball underneath my arm and I walked straight over to Casey Jones, who's standing there with his hands on his hips, watching all this, not saying a word. And I look at Casey Jones and I said, Casey, I have known you now since my first year at UCLA in 1970 when Willie Knowles introduced us through the Soulville Foundation. I know you, Casey Jones, as a Hall of Famer, as a man of integrity, as a man of credibility, and you're out here and you're watching this travesty of justice go on before your eyes and you're not saying anything about it and I am not going to take it any longer. And I got the ball underneath my arm. And he's trying to get the ball from me. And I won't give it to him. Finally, he reaches out and just grabs it away from me. And he looks at me, serious as can be. And he gives me a big wink. And he says in this very straight voice, Bill, you know darn well that we can't get out of here today until Larry's team wins a game. So just get out there and get going and let's get on with it. And then after practice was over, we all went out to lunch and we had just the time of our lives. And uh, it, was, it was a spectacular time for me. I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I got to be a member of the Boston Celtics. I got to tell you a story. I got a story for you because this is what would happen when you would come into the game for the first time. Generally, you might get up, you'd be in against a backup center at, at times. We knew, we, knew right. it was a we knew it was a horrible mismatch. And we would have a little side bet at the press table as to how many seconds, not minutes, seconds it would take for you and Larry to successfully work a give and go. <laughs> all, a give and go. And, and right out of the 1920 New York Celtics with, with Joe Lapchick and Dutch Dennard, a give and go. And you guys did it continually. Everyone knew it was coming because you, Bill Wong, could vary the timing on the pass differently with Larry and Larry could finish any which way he needed either hand of course with the wonderful left hand but it was a, we just laughed every night he said here it comes they're going to want to give and go and you ran a damn give and go and no one stopped it the ultimate skill Bob the ultimate skill <laughs> is change of pace change of direction and Larry yeah. had that he, and you, and he, you knew, and, he you know, knew how to get open and he had fabulous hands the strength uh, but someone had to deliver the ball on time too Mr. Well, Wall Larry <laughs> I, I played the small forwards I played with at the highest levels, Jamal Wilkes, Bob Gross, and Larry Bird. And those guys, they could catch. They, they could turn the worst pass in the world into <laughs> gold. And so, and Larry, his hands were so strong. I, I don't think that I ever saw Larry in the weight room. And I, I myself, I love the weight room. But Larry, I, I, I never saw him in the weight room. But the strength of his hands, I don't know where that came from. Maybe from throwing hay bales around. I don't know. But of all the players that I've ever seen up close, the two players that had the strongest hands in terms of grabbing that ball out of the scrum and just pulling it away from everybody else, uh, Will Chamberlain, and Larry Bird. And, and, and all I had to do was get the ball anywhere near Larry because his sense of change of pace, change of direction, it, it was just so far ahead of everybody else because, because people, people and his opponents, they thought that Larry was not quick. They thought that he was not fast. And nothing could be further from the truth because quickness and speed are two different things but they're also not physical skills. They are mental skills and the sense of anticipation, the sense of figuring out what's next. And, and Larry always knew what was next before anybody else did. Just I'm reminded of what your, your mentor, Mr. Wooden, uh, used to say, be quick, but don't hurry. Right. And, 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 that's, and, that's, and the sense that it's a mental game and the decisions and the, the challenges that we have 
is to figuring things out. And that was Larry Bird. That was Red Auerbach. That was the Boston Celtics. And we haven't talked about Red and how much fun he made it. Oh, well, go ahead. Floor is yours. We'll we'll cede the floor to you. Don't worry. (laughs) I I, I didn't hear that, Bob. Sorry. We'll cede the floor to you. Don't worry. It's all good. Red Auerbach. I mean, this guy, yeah. I, I had the privilege of meeting a ton of guys, and this guy, Red Auerbeck, was right up there at the very top. And, uh, very much like Al Davis in terms of, look, get the job done, guys. That's all that matters, and I will, t- I will take care of everything else. You, know, you think of the elements of leadership, and, and Red epitomized every single one of them. Uh, you know, show us where we're going, how we're going to get there, what it's going to look like when we get there. Never ask anybody to do anything you haven't already done or aren't willing to do yourself. Pull the team together. Define the terms of the conflict. Make them play your game. Do what others can't and won't do. Uh, uh, Lead the relentless offensive attack because offense wins. And assume that risk, failure, doubt, hesitation, uncertainty, and complete failure, that's always an option in anything you're ever going to do. And then the leader. Red Auerbach, he has to be able to say no. And did he ever say no to me? Oh, my gosh. But uh, when the leader can say no, as Red did, and the team and the players still buy in, anything is possible. And, and then when things go wrong, when things go wrong, it's the leader's fault, and he has to assume the responsibility. And Red did that, and it was fantastic. But with Red, things didn't go wrong. They just stopped the game early or or. Or, or the refs were watching a different game or the refs had a flight to catch. Who knows? <laughs> All right. Can I, can I hit you with one, one college thing since you uh, – obviously that's what you've been doing uh, over the last however many years. I, I want to get your take on the name image likeness, Bill, before we get off and kind of, you know, these kids that are going to get paid uh, for these third-party endorsements. Yep. Just, I am for anything – that makes it better for the players. I am for player empowerment, whether it's uh, the new G League path forward, whether it's name, image, and likeness, whether it's giving them food to eat, whether it's improving the quality of their, of their college experience, whatever it is, you know, better, better working conditions for, for everybody. You know, I think that one of our, one of our challenges as, we, as we're facing COVID-19 is, and the list is endless, but who are we going to be and what are we going to be on the backside when we come out? Yeah. Are we going to learn anything? Or are we just going to go right back to the way we were? Because when things crumble at the top, which is what's happening right now, that's a sign of a faulty foundation. And the problems that we're having right now Yes, they are uh, incredibly exacerbated and magnified, but it wasn't that they all of a sudden just appeared. And so I am looking for a better world. I am looking for a world uh, led by people like Red Auerbach and Bill Russell and Larry Bird, Steve Palayuka and Rick Grosbeck. I'm looking for a world in where uh, the working conditions and the opportunities, when the healthcare availability and when the individual health of people, which is because the strength of the, the strength of the team is the strength of the individual. And we have to work on our health every single moment. And I do that. Nutrition, hydration, hygiene, and exercise. And then ultimately at the back end is the, the way we look at how to keep things going. And, we started this show with talking about the Celtics being the most successful franchise ever. That has been sustained over time. Now, we always want more, and we're never satisfied, but we have to look at the way we live and the way we produce our energy and the way we consume our resources and the way we take care of each other and the way we take care of the planet. Because right now, the Earth our lives, our culture, humanity, we're sick, we're weeping. We need to heal. And that's not just going to happen because nothing is for certain. 
particularly when we just assume and let somebody else try to take care of something. I'm ready to step to the front. Put me in, coach. I'm ready to play. And with that, <laughs> we, we appreciate it, Bill. We appreciate we really, it. Yeah, we really appreciate you coming on. Great stories. We're glad you're well. And uh, the one thing I'll tell everybody, Bill, listen, I always say this to anybody. Uh, remember PK80. A lot of people think you go out and you do a game and you don't do your homework. You were there from shoot around number one to the end of shoot around number eight, eight straight shoot arounds, you and me sitting there talking to every coach, every sports information director all day. You, you do your homework, you know your stuff. Now, again, I, I think the, the beauty of you is you're you, you're you, and, and, and you're real. I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I know Jeff and I know Bob. Bob, you tell your beautiful bride hello. I shall. And God bless Bob Ryan, and thank you for our lives. You're incredible. Way thank to go. Thank you very much, Bill. We appreciate it. Be safe. And we'll no Celtics go. Here we go. <laughs> thank you.